did a wedding some time ago. I was in the part of the ceremony where I explained the was explaining the responsibility of the husband and the responsibility of the wife according to the scriptures. And about that point, one of the bridesmaids kind of leaned over, I guess, to one standing beside her and said, Oh, those are just the traditional roles. And, uh, and I didn't do it, but I probably should have, but I wanted to stop and say, Ma'am, there was no tradition in the Garden of Eden. It was just the way God designed it. Because you see, when God began the human race, He, uh, he began it with marriage. And marriage is essentially, I think, the foundation of family, and family the foundation of any nation. Plato, I think it was the guy that said, the life of a nation is the life of the family written large. And so if you want to destroy a nation, just destroy a family. If you want to destroy a family, destroy a marriage. Now I know that there are many of you, some I know personally, some I don't know, but yet I know it's true, who have struggled in this area in the past in such a way, for whatever reason, your marriage hasn't been what God designed and for whatever reason... It ended. And I'm not here today to bring an indictment against your past, but more so should God be so gracious as to encourage you about the future. I know that some of you as singles struggle with the idea of ever getting married because in the statistics, those who are believers and those who are unbelievers have pretty much an even draw chance of, uh, of staying married. In fact, if you're even in this, if in this culture of the fundamental doctrine of the Scripture, uh, the odds are even worse for the, for the Christian instead of better. And I know that there's some of you who are married and maybe doing great or maybe not so great. Where can you find the fulfillment in the future that God has designed for you to have? Where can you find, as God designed Adam and Eve, and is, as those principles have been repeated throughout history and throughout Scripture, where can you find that fulfillment that was intended in the marriage relationship? Well, certainly we're not going to find it in what our culture gives. We have to return once again to the Bible. God is not a gambler. Uh, when he began the human race, he didn't just begin things and set them in motion and then say, all right, see you at the end of time and see how things work out. But he began marriage with a blueprint. And it is only when there is a deviation from that blueprint that there is also a deviation in fulfillment. When there is an alignment with that blueprint, doesn't mean things will be perfect, but there is a harmony and there is an ability to enjoy marriage, even in spite of the, uh, the difficulties of life, as God intended it to be. And so I want to ask you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 3. 
If you've been with us, you know we're going through a series on 1 Peter called Faith in Times Like These. And like we said last week, as we looked at what particularly our culture rails against, and that's the role of the wife, nowhere more clearer does our faith struggle in times like these than in the biblical role of a man, the biblical role of a woman, particularly in marriage, against our culture. I think, by and large, the reason our culture has such a problem with the wife's role is because we don't understand the husband's. If we had a greater understanding of the role of a husband, we wouldn't have near the problem we have with the role of the wife. And so what I'd like to do today is to renovate. And before we do any kind of a renovate, you have to, you have to clear Okay, before you can build. You've got a blast before you can build. And so we want to tear down some, some false truth and to give the real truth as we rebuild. In chapter 3, verse 7, is where we're going to start. We left off verse 6 last week. Pick up with verse 7. Peter says, You husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman, and grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, have you ever thought about the fact that maybe the reason your prayers aren't being answered is because of the way you're treating your wife? Because very clearly we're told that if you're not doing the first part of verse 7, that that hinders your prayers. We're told elsewhere in the scripture that the husband is the head of the wife. And this is why I think our culture has such a problem with the role of the wife, because we don't understand the role of the husband. For the husband to be the head does not mean that the wife is the tail. For the husband to be the head does not mean dictatorship. Uh, It doesn't mean that he rules with an iron glove, an iron hand. It doesn't mean that at all. Because the example given in Scripture is for the husband to love the wife as Christ loved the church. And you don't see Christ cramming anything down anybody's throat. Instead, what he does is he lays down his life and he motivates his bride, the church, through example and through... uh, Through sacrificial love, he woos her through his tenderness, not through his demands. It's not a dictatorship. It's not superiority either. The husband is not given that uh, the authority because he's superior. Because remember what we read last week? We just read it here in verse 7 as well. We're told the husband is to honor her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. There is an equality there, in the sense that they're both in the image of God. Yet, of course, they have a different function within that equality. We really struggle to, uh, to understand that, don't we? That there is an equality and yet there's a different function. Yet we experience it every single day in every other realm that we have authority. Uh, the policeman's no better than me, but he is my authority and I will obey what he says. The government is no better, we are equal. But I will obey what it says. My boss is no better, 
but I will obey because it's an issue of authority. It's not an issue of equality. So the husband is not superior. It's simply an issue of authority. And you've got a very clear picture in 1 Corinthians that says that the, the head of a woman is the husband and the head of Christ is God the Father. And you've got a beautiful picture there of headship because Jesus is no more less God because he's under the Father's authority. He is just as much God as the Father, and yet he submits to the Father. The wife is no more or less in the image of God than the husband because even though there's an issue of authority there. So it's not about dictatorship. It's not about superiority. And in spite of what a lot of us men think, it's not about ability either. Okay? It's not we have been endowed with gifts that make us superior leaders. Uh-uh. It's about responsibility. And that is primarily what headship or leadership is for. You are the example and you are responsible for the decisions that are made in the home. You don't have to make them all. In fact, if you're smart, you won't. But you're responsible for the decisions that are made. You take it back to the Garden of Eden. When Eve sinned first, who did God come looking for? Didn't come looking for Adam, uh, for Eve, but came looking for Adam. And what did Adam do? He pointed to Eve, said, the woman you gave me, she's the one that gave me an I-8. But that didn't cut it. So, remove from your mind that headship is anything of a degrading aspect. Biblically, headship, all it means is the buck stops there with fault, with responsibility. You are ultimately responsible for what happens in the home. You've got a lousy home, who's responsible? Not your wife, not your kids, but with the head. Peter shows us that there's no such thing as leadership without love. Because again, our model is Jesus. And in verse 7 here, we have the example here of the husband to live with a wife in an understanding way. Our culture looks at that and says, boy, what a weak man. A tender man, a kind man. What a wet noodle. What a henpecked jerk. Let's his wife push him around like that. That's from the pit of hell. The scripture shows us that a real man, a strong man, is a man who is tender, like Jesus. A man who seeks to understand his wife, who seeks to honor his wife. That's what God sees as strength. God doesn't see that as weakness. The Bible tells us to live with her in an understanding way. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you, it doesn't mean just suck it up and deal with it. Okay? You're not going to be able to figure her out. She's a woman. She's different. She's weird. Just deal with it. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean live with her in an understanding way, meaning, you know, just take it. What does it mean? It means understand her. Live with her in such a way that you are understanding her. Literally, it means according to knowledge. You get to know her, in other words. And Peter says, she's a woman. There's a difference between you 
and a woman. It sounds pretty basic, but men have a great struggle with this. The Bible tells us to do this because as men, we tend to look at the differences and assume that there can't be anything wrong with us. Why can't a woman be more like a man? I beg your pardon? Yes, why can't a woman be more like a man? Only so honest, so thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair. But when you win, you'll always give your back a pack. Why can't a woman be like that? Of course not. You'd be livid if I had a drink or two. Nonsense. Would you be wounded if I never sent you flowers? Never. Why can't a woman be like you? One man in a million could shout a bit. Now and then there's one with slight defense. One perhaps whose truthfulness would go to bed. By and large, we are marvelous sex. Why can't a woman take off? Well, that famous scene from My Fair Lady, I think, illustrates that men, by and large, struggle to appreciate the differences between them and women. And uh, the differences we see as a threat, the differences we see as illogical, the differences we see as erratic, and as displayed up there too often, uh, wish that they would just be like we are. Because of course we're right. Husbands are told to live with their wives in a way that is understanding. That doesn't mean sympathetic. It means get to know her. She's a woman. She's different. And here, Peter, when, when he says to live with her in, in an understanding way, as with a weaker vessel, that means to recognize that there's a difference. Weaker of here, of course, is not inferior, as we said. In fact, the verse goes on to say, fellow heir of the grace of life. So it's not an issue of inferiority. It's an, an issue of difference. Obviously, there's a, a, a physical difference, weakness there. And uh, with some qualification, you might say there's an emotional difference difference that might be con construed as weaker than a man. But the main point here is that she is a woman. She's not a man. She's different. And so you are to live with her, to, to get to know her as a woman. Now, I'll tell you what, ladies, this may not sound like a big deal, but this is a big deal for a man. Very difficult to cross that, that threshold and to give the time that's necessary to do what this verse is saying. Um, I don't know. We're just, we're just like that. Talk to her, is what Peter is saying. Spend time listening to her. Uh, you, you should spend time listening to her. 
You could spend time listening to her. There's four very practical things right there. All of which, if you would apply, you would understand. You grow in your understanding of who she is. Peter also says to honor her. And God made the differences here not to frustrate you, but to compliment you. She is different. She is a woman. Understand her. Peter says also to honor her. Uh, what does that mean? What does it mean to honor? You know, some of these words we just read over and we think, oh, honor. Well, that's nice. I'll, I'll honor her. What does that mean? What does that really mean in your life? If I were to ask you, are you honoring your wife, what concrete ways could you show me that you honor her? Um, it's, it's so easy to, to couch it in terms of generalities. But when you get to specifics, what does it really mean to honor well, the word Peter uses here for honor is a word that means to value something. Uh, when, you, when, you treat, when something is valuable to you, you treat it differently, don't you? Think about your most prized physical possession, whatever it is. Be it a car, be it a boat, be it a shotgun maybe for some of you guys, I don't know. But you treat it special. And if anybody threatens it, it becomes for you a great source of irritation. Now take this out of the realms of shotguns now, and the one whom you vowed to honor. And it puts it on a whole different level. Peter says to grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Jesus Christ died on the cross, not just for your sins, but for the sins of that woman whom you are to honor. When I was in Russia, I saw one of those uh, Russian eggs, you know, that's an egg inside of an egg inside of a bigger egg, and it just gets bigger. And uh, some of them are beautiful. One I saw was kind of humorous. The biggest egg on the outside was our president. And as you opened it up on the inside, the smaller eggs uh, were, each one was a different recognizable woman. And when you finally got down to the smallest egg on the inside, guess who that was? It was his wife. And without making any kind of a, yeah, that's true, or yeah, isn't that funny, judgment against it, I've, of course I laughed at the time, but now I, I look at that and I think that is an incredibly interesting perception of how that nation perceives what's going on in this nation. Honor the wife. Honoring. Um, last month, I happened to be in the company of... Uh, some other folks, and there was a husband that was making jokes, basically, at his wife's expense there in the group of us. And he said something about his wife, and then, boy, he just, <laughs> he thought that was the funniest thing. And I looked over at his wife, and her eyes were just kind of down, and you could tell she was totally deflated by that comment. And I just hurt for her, because it was obvious this is not the only time that this happens. I mean, if this happens in public... Imagine what happens in the privacy and the stress of their own home. What kind of uh, things are said. And yet, on the other hand, what happens when a man, not only in the company of his home, but in the company of others, will say, will build his wife up, will honor her, will show her value in the eyes of other people, and say, I want you to understand what an absolutely fantastic woman I'm married to. Here's what she did yesterday. 
Here's what she did. Did I ever tell you about what she said to our kids last week? Uh, It just shows what brilliance this lady has as a mother. And if you do that kind of stuff genuinely in front of other people, that woman's self-esteem is going to continue to grow and grow. But instead, if you dishonor her in front of other people, that woman's self-esteem is going to get less and less. And the distance between you will widen. The text gives husbands a goal that ought to be ingrained in our brains. And that is, as a husband, make it your passion to understand and honor your wife. Two things, understand and honor. The two things that Peter says here. And he writes it in such a way to indicate that it's something that should be done continually. Understand, continually understand. Continually honor that woman. Back in April, the uh, Chicago Tribune had an article called Rules Guys Wish Girls Played By. And I found several of them interesting, and I'll tell you why I found them interesting after I read them. These are some rules that men wish that women followed. And there's 17, but I'll just read, won't read that many. Number three says... Don't ask what we're thinking about unless you're prepared to discuss such topics as monster trucks, the shotgun formation in football, and naval lint. Number four, when we have to go somewhere, absolutely anything you wear is fine, really. Number seven, no, we don't know what day it is. Number nine, yes and no are perfectly acceptable answers to almost any question. Thirteen, if we, if we said, if something we said can be interpreted two ways, and one of the ways makes you sad or angry, we meant the other way. Uh, Fifteen, when possible, please say whatever you have to say during commercials. And uh, seventeen, if we ask what's wrong and you say nothing, we will act like nothing's wrong. What's the underlying motive here? Of course, I didn't just read this to hear you chuckle. The underlying motive is this is really what guys think. Why is that? Because we're selfish. We are rooted in ourselves and wrapped up in our own little worlds. And the pride of a man can be so large as to encompass the entire globe around him. Much less those in his family. And yet, what is the example that we're given in Scripture? Not selfishness, but selflessness. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's probably not a husband in here who wouldn't say, if asked, would you lay down your life for your wife? You bet. We'd all stand up. Say, yeah, I would. And yet how many of us, myself included, would also lay down our lives for commercials? It strikes me so funny, like when Peter tells Jesus, Jesus says, you're going to deny me. Peter says, no, I won't. I'm willing to die for you. And a couple hours later, 
Peter falls asleep when asked to pray. I'm willing to die, but I'm not willing to pray. I'm willing to go to uh, third base, but not to first base. I think all of us would, in, in extreme circumstances, the heroism would come out in us and we would lay down our lives. Yet the Bible doesn't just call to wait for the extenuating circumstances, but in the daily life where true holiness is displayed. Because if, you're, if Christianity is not working in the home, then Christianity is not working. Because if it doesn't work there, it doesn't work. And it's no accident that at the head of every list of qualifications for church leaders is your home. And the very bottom of the list is so interesting. If you look at Titus 1, the very bottom of the list talks about what you know about this. The very top of the list is, here's uh, your family. How are you, how are you doing in your family? And how are you in your personal character? And then finally, uh, the Bible. Families first, because that's where true holiness is displayed. One of my seminary professors was a chaplain for the Dallas Cowboys a number of years ago, and he said that one time one of the players came to know Jesus, placed his faith in Jesus, and that this big, tough football player was really struggling in his marriage, and so came to this professor, this doctor, and said, uh, I'm going out to Thousand Oaks, California, and I need an assignment. And the professor says, all right, I want you to read the book of Ephesians. He says, okay, uh, where's that? So he shows him and goes to Thousand Oaks, California, comes back. It turns out this, this football player read Ephesians six times every day while he was there. Six times every day while he was there comes back and tells, calls his professor up and says, Doc, we've got to get together. I am really struggling with this book. He says, all right, come on over. He comes over and he sits down and he fl flips open the Bible and he, he, he finds his way to chapter 5 and he says, all right, let's see. Here it is. I can't believe this. It says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. He says, that's impossible. And the professor says, tell me what your wife does well. And in typical male fashion, he says, well, she does a lot of things well. well what specifically? Well, she's, she's an outstanding cook. He says, all right, your assignment is to go home tonight and to tell your wife she is an outstanding cook. Well, I couldn't do that. <laughs> That'd take a miracle. He says, well, that's what God specializes in. He says, well, if we do that, we're going to have to pray about it. So they get down on their knees. And this big football player's begging God, gave him strength to tell his wife she's a good cook. Well, he goes home that night, and it turns out his wife had laid out this outstanding meal, I mean, complete with candles. You know, un unbeknownst to her, he was planning to do this. And he's at the other end of this big table, this big football player, and he's just shaking because he knows what he has to do. And he's praying to God, God, you've got to help me. God, you've got to help me. And finally, he gets up the courage. And he says he stands up and he runs around to the other side of the table and grabs his wife. And he said that the lady turned white as a tablecloth. And he said later, he said, she thought I was going to clip her. 
And he picks this lady up, looks her straight in the face and says, Lady, that meal was wonderful. And he says that he knew at that point they were making progress. And later this guy went to give his testimony in front of a bunch of other of these football players. And I want to read to you what he wrote or what he said. He said, I want you to know I was the most yellow man in America behind a closed door. I take on anybody in the NFL. It usually took two or three in the pits. But you put me behind a closed door and I'm yellow. Jesus Christ came into my life. How do I know it's real? I'll tell you. He took a self-centered, great big football stud like me who had all of his life revolving around him and he began to deliver me from myself. Can God make you into a real man? A man not as our culture defines it, but a man strong like the scripture defines it? Sure he can. But are you willing to grow in your skills as a husband? Forget your past. Where are you going to go in your future with that? You want a very practical application? Wait until your wife has forgotten this sermon. And then go to her and ask her, What can I do to honor you? What can I do to better understand you? And then don't defend yourself when she answers you. Because it will be very insightful for the next few minutes. How can I better understand you? How can I better honor you? Because a person is not honored if they don't feel honored. A person is not understood if they don't feel understood. And feeling understood and honored is a key. Linda Riley made an interesting, uh, a great statement. She says to the husband, Your bride is waiting for you to love, cherish, and comfort her as you vowed. Only one man vowed to be your wife's husband. You're the one. The only one who can fulfill the calling to cherish this special daughter of the king fellow heir of the grace of life. So as a husband, make it your passion to understand and honor your wife. The context broadens a little bit now as we move to verse 8. Peter says, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Wouldn't it be great if this described the emotional spirit in our homes? Think of it again in that context. Harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly. That word brotherly, again, is that Philadelphia love. It's the love of enjoying, with, about, uh, enjoying being with somebody. Kind-hearted and humble in spirit. Peter gives us some very practical commands in these next few verses. Commands that you will have an opportunity today, as soon as we say amen and head out the door, to apply. And that's what I love so much about the Bible, is that it can immediately be applied in our lives, particularly 
these issues here that we're about to discuss. But first, let's look at an example. the fact that it's a cartoon make you think that it's any less real, because a great part of what makes beasts out of the best of husbands is that we don't respond and seek to understand a woman's natural emotions. Our pride gets offended. Uh, We won't seek to understand. She's being so difficult, when in truth, she's being different. Now, granted, there are times when both spouses are not just being difficult, but are, in, but are flat wrong, okay, and being rude. How are we to have the kind of harmony that's described here in verse 8, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, when someone is not doing their part? Well, look at verse 9. Not returning evil for evil, or insult for insult but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. You know the proverb that says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. How can you turn away wrath? A gentle answer. Same as Peter says, you don't return evil for evil, but instead a blessing. Who is our example here, once again, of not returning evil for evil? Of course, it's Jesus. You remember what we read in chapter 2, where Peter writes in verse 23, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus could have called ten legions. He could have called 10,000 angels, as the old hymn says, to deal with the evil that he was having to go through. But he didn't. Instead, what did he do? As he was hanging from the cross, looking down upon the very ones who were crucifying him, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't have any idea what they're doing. What a healthy perspective when somebody is rude to you to be able to have the wherewithal and think with an eternal perspective and say, not in self-righteousness, but in truth, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And instead of returning evil with evil, which is what our knee-jerk reaction is, 
Instead, return with a blessing. Our word eulogy comes from this word here for blessing. It means to speak well of somebody, not to, not to return evil upon them. Why would we do this? Peter says, why would we continually give a blessing? He says, because you're called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. He is emphasizing the grace of God because the word inherit, in fact, we even understand in the sense in English, inherit, is getting something that you didn't work for. That's grace. He says the reason we should return evil with a blessing is because this is exactly what happens to us when the Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins. Under no obligation, he did it out of grace. And incidentally, you know, when a husband is told to love his wife as Christ loved the church, was Christ loving the church because the church was loving Christ? Nope. Every one of his disciples that very night fled. One denied, one betrayed, but all of them fled. Christ did not lay down his life because the bride was worthy. And there's going to be many times, husbands, when your wife is not, is not acting right. I mean, it's just the way it is. What's your response? To be like Jesus and not return evil with evil, but instead a blessing. So here is a principle, and this is probably the hardest thing to do in relationships, and yet it's the key to harmony. Resolve to respond to evil with a blessing and give God room to bring growth. Because what happens when you return evil for evil? If somebody says something to me and I just return it right back, what does that do but justify what they just said to me? Because now we're both in the wrong. But if when somebody says something to me and instead I see something kind in return, or better yet, I don't say anything bad in return, that gives room for God to work in their heart. I think about the times that that I've said something uh, rude to Kathy, and then Kathy will respond with kindness. Immediately, I can feel the Holy Spirit's thumbscrews on me. And it's not very long after that I've got to come to her and say, you know, would you forgive me for dot, dot, dot. But yet, if it's reciprocated, it's justified in my mind, even though it's wrong. And it gets nowhere. Return evil with a blessing and give God room for growth. Incidentally, this is not only true in marriages, but in every relationship of significance. There was a father one time was having such a struggle with his son. In fact, the son had just run away from home. And this guy goes to this counselor and he says, I'm having so much trouble with my son. The guy is a total rebel. He never does anything I say. Uh, He doesn't have any goals or ambitions in life. And the counselor listened for a little while and asked him, so let me ask you a question. How long have you been cursing your son? He says, what do you mean? He says, well, ever since you've come in here, all you've said is negative things about him. How long have you been doing that? And the father thought for a second. He said, well, I guess I've been doing that all my life, or all his life. So the counselor says, well, why don't you try instead blessing your son? Say something good to him. Something good about him. So the father goes home, shares with his wife 
So why don't we try this instead? So in his prayers, he would say good things about his son. In the conversation with his wife, he'd say good things about his son. In the conversation with his son, he would say good things about his son. Nothing negative. And one day while the son was having lunch with the father, the father said nothing negative, didn't say anything about his unkept hair, his unshaven face, his hippie clothes. And instead he asked him how things were going and affirmed him in what he was doing. And the son was so blown away that about halfway through the meal, he said, Father, I'm not, I'm not real sure what's happening here, but would it be okay if I were to come home and stay in my room tonight? The father was so struck to the heart because he realized what he had been doing his entire life, the son's entire life, is cursing his son. You're doing this wrong. You're doing that wrong. Why can't you shape up? Why don't you get headed in the right direction? But when he instead stopped returning evil with evil, but returned with a blessing instead, it gave room for God to work in that son's life. And that relationship was restored. You don't think the same thing can happen in a marriage? I guarantee you it can. This passage is in the context of marriage. And it also applies to every other relationship of significance. Peter explains to us, in verse 10, as he quotes from Psalm 34, proof of what he's just said. He said in verse 10, For let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. See, there's not just one action here, but there's two. You're not just turning away from evil, but you're also seeking what is good. Just because you stop doing the wrong thing doesn't mean that you start doing the right thing. It's two separate actions, particularly as it regards speaking, which is what's the context here. And I think it's also significant to point out that the word he uses here for refrain in verse 10, refrain his tongue from evil, is not the word that means just kind of, you've got a choice and please choose to do what's right. It's the word that means quit it. It assumes you're doing it. It means refrain from continuing to use your tongue for evil. And instead, give a blessing. Instead. In our lives, we often want the benefits of change without the sacrifice that change requires. You can think of it uh, with working out. Well, we all want to look like Arnold, don't we? But we don't want to have to do what it takes to look like him. Right? We'd all love to be able to play instruments like these guys, but you don't want to have to practice like these guys practice. We want the benefits of change, but we don't want the hard work that goes with it. Let's take it to another level now. Because a lot of times what folks will do is they'll say, okay, I'm having trouble with my finances. Lord, I just give my finances over to you. And yet they don't do anything differently about the way they handle money. Take it an even deeper level. God, I just give my marriage to you. And yet there is no effort made to live according to the biblical principles. My friend, if you want a great marriage, there is a simple formula for doing it. Doing it is not simple. But there is a simple formula, which we've talked about for the last two weeks. 
If you will make it your driving passion, husband, to understand and to honor your wife, there will be a change. If both of you, in the context of your relationship, will resolve to respond to evil with a blessing, you will give God the room to bring the needed change. This is exactly what Peter says in the last verse, verse 12. He says, For, in other words, he's explaining, For the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You see the two opposites there? The eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, those who do what's right. His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Where have we seen this issue of prayer coming up again? Of God paying attention to prayers or God not paying attention to prayers? The very first verse we looked at, where we're told that the husband, if he honors his wife, the husband, if he uh, understands his wife, then God, then his prayers will not be hindered. See, it all fits together. Your prayers are not hindered if you do what's down in verse 12. If you do what is right. You may think that it would take an absolute miracle and it might just take that to bring your relationship back to where it needs to be. Well, that's what God specializes in. If you will not only give your marriage over to Him, but if you will also willingly turn away from evil and willingly choose to do what is right. Right.